Hey, what you're about to listen to is the podcast version of what was a live radio segment on KPFA. Consequently, when you hear us give out a call-in number, you don't want to call it. If you're listening to this as a podcast, it is already too late, and nobody on the other end of that phone number is going to have any useful answers for you. You can, however, send in a question for our next episode by shooting an email to upfront at kpfa.org. You can also tune in for the next edition live and ask your question over the phone then. We normally air Monday mornings on KPFA just after 7.30 news headlines. All right, let's go to this week's Corona Calls. We'll turn, as we do most weeks at this time, to new developments in the world of COVID-19. Our guest is Dr. John Swartzberg, Clinical Professor Emeritus of Infectious Diseases at UC Berkeley School of Public Health. Good morning, Dr. Swartzberg. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I wanted to study uh, start with a, a study that was just published in The Lancet that is a, kind of a, a follow-up to something we discussed several weeks ago the question of whether the cheap, widely available diabetes drug metformin can be useful in reducing the likelihood of long COVID. This is a a randomized controlled trial, which is kind of the, the gold standard for figuring out if drugs work. And it showed a 41% reduction in long COVID among unvaccinated people who received metformin during the course of their disease um, to put that in context, people who were vaccinated were 83% less likely and, uh, and any benefit that the vaccinated cohort got from getting metformin as well, uh, was so minor. It was not statistically significant in the study size that this was, um, what, uh, what, what did you think of the overall trial? Well, the trial was well designed and the results are impressive. The when you it's been critiqued by numerous <clears throat> excuse me numerous scientists and uh, physicians, and the, the data does look solid. So it is it's encouraging to think that uh, a drug that's very inexpensive and uh, has a long long track record, uh, almost entirely of safety, uh, with the uh, the with the exception of some minor side effects. Uh, might have an effect on pre- preventing long COVID. So um, <clears throat> that's the good news. I have no bad news, but I have a, just a word of caution about it, and not so much about the study, but about the fact that the way we learn things is by not having one study, even though well-designed, double-blinded, controlled, um, that shows something. We we need to have this data repeated uh, by other investigators to make certain that it's going to hold up. If it holds up, it um, partic- it could really hold help, a hope for people who uh, are at high risk for COVID. For example, people who've had a severe case of it, um, uh, excuse me, not high risk for COVID, for long COVID. Uh, people who've had a severe case, females more than males, there's a long list of people who are at increased risk. So this could be something further in our armamentarium. As you point out, Brian, the if you're up to date with your vaccination that reduces considerably your risk for long covid so that's a major tool that we have and have had for a long time and people should avail themselves of that also if you um 
if you are a candidate for Paxlovid and you take that, that appears to also reduce the risk of long COVID. So we're starting to accumulate tools in our toolkit now to help people prevent getting long COVID, which frankly is one of the major problems still uh, with this virus. We haven't yet seen a study, and unless I've missed something, that tries Paxlovid, test Paxlovid in combination with metformin. No, we have not. And people have um, mentioned that this is um, in the works. The study, not I don't think it started yet, but there are pe- people who have um, applied to do this study. So that would be a very important question, sort of a two-pronged approach. Again, I just want to emphasize that uh, the major thing you can do right now is to make sure you're up to date with your vaccination. But um, it would be great if we had um, somebody got COVID and you took one or two medications and that reduced the, let's say, 5% chance of getting long COVID to really very, very small number. Yeah. Well, I, I did have a question about the, the utility here because, it, again, at least as I understand the study, you can correct me if I'm wrong, um, there was so much benefit from being vaccinated and boosted in the first place. Any added benefit from metformin in this trial group, um, which was around 1,500 people uh, divided up into parallel trials of different drugs and different drug combinations, any any additional benefit from metformin didn't achieve uh, statistical significance. How useful is it to have a drug that we can't show is actually helpful to vaccinated people? Oh, I think where it's useful is in, again, high-risk people, uh, people at high risk for getting long COVID. Uh, it may still remain useful in that, with that. But I think the greatest utility of it might be if, and I'm praying this is not the case, but if there's a new variant that comes along that increases the risk of long COVID. Um, what I'm getting at is that Delta, which preceded Omicron, uh, is really the, um, one of the major problems for us. Delta if you had Delta, you had a much higher risk of getting long COVID than with Omicron. So, you know, the virus has <clears throat> really done a favor for us in terms of, if you if you look at it that way, uh, in terms of um, Omicron and all of its subvariants being less virulent. That is, it tends to cause less severe disease than Delta did, and uh, it seems to cause less long COVID. So we're we're in a very nice place as long as this virus doesn't. Uh, morph into something else. Since metformin is already FDA approved for diabetes and, and prediabetes, is this something that physicians can right now consider prescribing for high-risk COVID patients? Yes. Um, any drug that is FDA approved can be uh, a prescription by a physician can be written for that drug for what we call off-label prescriptions. That is, it may not be approved for long, preventing long COVID, but the doctor could prescribe it for that. Uh, this is Corona Calls with Dr. John Swartzberg. We are ready to take your questions, 1-800-958-9008. If you've got questions on new COVID news or science, that's 1-800-958-9008. Uh, second big paper in The Lancet that made my eyes kind of widen. Um, <laughs> first study I've seen, I cannot believe this past review. The first study I've seen in which... Uh, study subjects were intentionally infected 
with COVID. Uh, the, the age group was 18 to 30, unvaccinated and seronegative, which means they were, they were tested for antibodies that would indicate whether they'd recovered from a past infection of COVID. And as far as the people running the study could tell, they, they all had naive immune systems. Um, and they, they were conducting the study to determine how much virus people emit through what pathways. So they kept them locked in negative pressure chambers and isolated in the United Kingdom while they repeatedly swabbed their noses and their throats and sampled the air and sampled the surfaces. And um, in the course of this ethically dubious investigation, found some interesting things, which is that just two people in the study group uh, accounted for 86% of the airborne virus, uh, which, which seems to confirm the hypothesis that for reasons not entirely knowable, some people act as super spreaders, that everyone doesn't uh, pose equivalent hazard to everyone else. Also that nose swabs correlated better with emissions than throat swabs. So while a, a throat swab might tell you you're infected, uh, the nose swab tells you you're contagious. And uh, reassuringly to me, almost no virus emission, about 2% of the virus emissions they collected were before the first positive test from those nose swabs. Um, what did you think of the study? Why were they allowed to deliberately infect people with a deadly disease? And uh, how useful is this information? Well, this is um, this is something that we've been... Uh, watching now since early on in the pandemic. Um, it was within the early part of the pandemic, within the first six months, we, we out of the United Kingdom, we um, heard about uh, the possibility of these types of studies where you take asymptomatic people, healthy, otherwise, pe otherwise healthy people, and purposefully infect them. It created quite a stir in 2000, um, because of what you're getting at, and that is, is this ethical to do? And interestingly, uh, there was a lot of back and forth ab about this in terms of uh, from, from medical ethicists as well as many other doctors and scientists as to whether this should be done with, with different, differing opinions about it. We have to remember that at the time this was brought up, there was nothing to offer people for COVID. This was a... Uh, devastating disease, and, and um, we still, I still have indelibly imprinted in my mind New York City in May of 20, 2000 with um, all the hospitals filled up and people in the hallways on ventilators. So the, the mindset was very different, and we needed to find out more about this virus as quickly as possible. And so it, it's not... It's, it's much more of a nuanced issue in terms of whether this is ethical or not. Um, you've got people, um, not good people on both sides, but really good thinkers on both sides of this argument. So that's, that's sort of the background to this. The bottom line was that uh, the United Kingdom considered this to be an ethical study, and it was approved to go ahead. And interestingly, it had lots of applicants for it. There were lots of people who wanted to um, volunteer for this. Uh, true al altruism. The um, this particular study, um, you you summarized it beautifully. Um, 
super, it confirmed what we've kn- known epidemiologically about super spreaders. I, I still remember that um, church in Washington State uh, where I think uh, just a very few people are accounted for almost all the cases of a massive outbreak. Um, we confirmed that the nose seems to be shedding much more virus than the throat in terms of transmission. Um, so those are those are really important observations about this. The um, these trials are ongoing, and uh, they can be used for other things such as uh, testing to see if a medication works, etc. So. Um, uh, it's a very interesting area that I think it'll be even more interesting once history has a chance to really look at this carefully. All right, let's start to bring some of our callers into the conversation. Harry is on the line in Hayward. Good morning, Harry. Good morning. I'd like to... What's your question? Ask, oh, uh, a question. Uh, I belong to a group that is in October 7th is going to have a public meeting for the first time since COVID was, uh, has been declared uh, a non-emergency. And we were, uh, this particular library, it's, it's a library, large auditorium about holding about capacity of about 200 people. We hope to have a, a large group coming. I'd like to get a recommendation if what you think their current policy, I think, in this library is that masking is recommended. I was wondering what you yourself feel about when we have this group. It's, it's a public meeting we are planning. Sure. Uh, thanks for that question, Harry. The the what I'm what I'm hearing your question is about is. Uh, about being vaccinated as as one as the one of the criteria for being being able to come to the meeting. Um, uh, we the, don't have that as a criteria necessarily. We might notify. The, should we put out our flyer? Uh, right. You should be Got vaccinated. Mm. Got it. You know, okay. um, timing is everything. Uh, if you'd asked this question. Uh, in 2001, uh, the answer would have been yes, people should be vaccinated uh, and up to date with their vaccination prior to coming to us, being in an environment where they could spread the virus to other people. And the reason for that was that er early on after the vaccines became available, there was good data that the vaccines not only prevented people from getting really sick, winding up in the hospitals and dying, but there was very good data to show that it prevented people from getting infected and therefore preventing people from spreading the virus. So the vaccine at that time was a tool that could be used both to protect the individual who got vaccinated as well as to protect people from getting infected. The problem is that the virus changed. The virus became much more transmissible and was able to get around uh, the protection you had from vaccines in terms of preventing you from getting infected. You have maybe one, two months, maybe as much as three in some people of protection against getting infected after getting a booster. But following that, you don't have really good protection against getting infected. And if you're not protected against getting infected, you're not protected against 
being able to spread the virus to other people. You remain very protected against hospitalization and death. And uh, as we were talking about earlier, to long COVID, but you're not protected about in terms of preventing you from spreading the virus to other people so, so well. So bottom line is that insisting upon vaccination now in terms of preventing one person from infecting other people um, with, the, with the current iteration of the virus that we have uh, is not a good argument. So I would, I would say that, yes, I would like everybody to be vaccinated coming to a, an event that, um, could in, that could increase the risk of transmission of this virus to lots of people, uh, that everybody should be vaccinated to protect themselves. But in terms of protecting others, uh, it's hard to make that argument today. Probably a better use of energy to have a conversation with the library about what kind of air filters they have or, or can set up or whether they can open windows and, and set up a cross breeze to, to keep air from just collecting in the space, right? Absolutely. As a matter of fact, I wrote down a note when I was talking to Harry about ventilation. That's such an important point, Brian. Uh, the library should do everything they can to maximize uh, airflow in that in that uh, room that will go a long way to help prevent people from getting infected but, uh, that's helpful about, harry of uh masking and should we try to stop people if we don't think that they're vaccinated or uh when they come to the door and should we do anything to say they don't want it, they're not going to be masked what if what what about that yeah. I, I, again, I don't think that um, people should be excluded because they're not vaccinated. Um, I would certainly personally be wearing a mask indoors with a large group of people. I'd be wearing not just a mask, but a very good mask in 95, KN95 that fit me very well. Because this is a situation where um, one can get infected. Let me just digress for a moment and say that you know, we've had, again, very good news about hospitalizations and death. Uh, the CDC Friday or Thursday or Friday uh, um, brought us further information that deaths and hospitalizations continue to decline here in the United States. I think Texas is the only state that has a few counties that are in the red any longer. Um, so this is wonderful. But don't translate that into thinking that there's not a lot of virus circulating. There's lots of people getting COVID. There's a lot of people getting infected right now. It's just that because of so much background immunity from previous infections and or vaccination, and because it's Omicron, one of its variants of Omicron, we're not seeing really serious illness. So the chances, if you've got 200 people indoors for a prolonged period of time, the chances of several people being infected is, is fairly high still. Um, unfortunately, we don't know how high because we no longer uh, monitor this kind of data. Hope that's helpful, Harry. Um, Dr. Schwartzberg, I got a question from the inbox here. I think that is uh, relevant to Paxlovid newly having a full regular authorization from the FDA. Jacob says he is on his fifth day of Paxlovid and still testing positive for COVID. So he's at the end of the round of the prescription he currently has. And he asks, would a new round of Paxlovid relieve my symptoms? And is answer, that something that doctors can do now? Yes, it is. And the answer is unknown. Uh, there are ongoing studies to see if a longer course of Paxlovid 
would be beneficial. That is 10-day course as opposed to a five-day course. So we will get that answer, but we don't have it at this point. Um, if The fact that Jacobs is, t- is still testing positive after five days is not unusual at all. Um, we know that Paxlovid does decrease the viral replication, but we still see lots of people taking Paxlovid uh, continuing to shed the virus. So he should continue to follow the protocols uh, that have been fairly well outlined by the CDC, and that is if he's continuing to test positive, um, he should continue to be very cautious about being around other people and make sure to have a, a good mask on if he's out with other people. A second round of Paxlovid is something he could talk to his doctor about, though. I, I remember Anthony Fauci uh, took a second round of Paxlovid before full authorization of the drug. He said it's because he got rebound and his rebound symptoms were worse than the symptoms of his initial infection, which is very unusual. That was very unusual. That's right. Uh, that was done at a time when we did not have any idea whether a second round would help. And we don't know today whether a second round would help with that. We know that rebound occurs um, 15% roughly of people who take Paxlovid, uh, but rebound also occurs in a little less than 10% of people who don't take Paxlovid. So rebound occurs in either case. It's a little more common with Paxlovid. So another question beyond the question of should is a 10-day course better than a five-day course is if you get rebound, should you take another round of Paxlovid? And the answer to that is unknown. So you're right, Brian. Now that this drug is FDA approved, talk to your doctor about what she or he thinks should be uh, would be best for you. Um, I think we can squeeze in one more quick question from the inbox. This is about another study. It was forwarded by Karin in Petaluma, uh, published in from a, a group of researchers in Queensland in a journal called Science Answers. They were putting brain cells from mice uh, into a Petri dish or whatever the equivalent is, infecting them with COVID and looking at what happened. And they showed the neurons fused together once they were infected, uh, leading them to postulate that this might account for some of the lingering symptoms like brain fog. The, the, the implication, as I understand it, is that if two brain cells have fused, uh, they fire at the same time. The neurons fire at the same time. They're incapable of operating as independent circuits. Well, what did you think of the research? Well, this particular study, I, I'm not certain which one she's referring to, but there's been a lot of uh, research now on the effect of SARS-CoV-2 on neurons, um, specifically because of what you were just talking about, and that is brain fog is such a common manifestation of, of uh, post-COVID infection, long COVID. Um, there, this, what, what Karen is talking about, I've seen other studies show as well, and that is that um, we know that oftentimes cells not just brain cells, neurons, but also other cells, immune cells, for example, when injured uh, by a virus can often clump together. And so this uh, is a very fruit, maybe a very fruitful line of scientific inquiry in terms of understanding why people are getting long COVID and the, particularly the brain fog manifestations of it. There are other changes that I think, Brian, you and I talked about two or three weeks ago, um, 
that we've we've now noticed uh, in terms of the central nervous system with COVID infections. So I think we're starting to hone in on um, different causes of the common manifestation of brain fog that too many people are experiencing. I think also worse kind of as a matter of headline literacy, if if you read past the headline and find a journal article that is about research conducted on cells from an animal in a petri dish rather than on people in human bodies, um, be wary of anyone who is extrapolating to actual conclusions about the course of disease in the real world. It, it kind of helps flesh out hypotheses, but isn't going to tell you anything applicable. Absolutely. Thank you for making that point. We always begin with, with these kind of in vitro studies or laboratory studies, and those have to precede anything that we do in humans. Dr. Schwartzberg, thank you so much for spending another Monday morning with us. You're welcome. Thank you very much. All right, that does it for this week's edition of Corona Calls. If you want to send in a question for the next one, you can shoot an email anytime to upfront at kpfa.org. Or you can tune in live. Next week's Corona Calls will be on KPFA Tuesday at 7.30 because of the Juneteenth holiday. We put a little bit of extra work into repackaging this live segment as a podcast because it feels like the information is useful to a lot of people. and We ought to make it accessible through as many channels as possible. You can help us get the word out by rating and reviewing it in whatever app you're using to listen. And if you want to pitch in some cash, we wouldn't say no. We always take donations at kpfa.org. appreciate it if you mentioned Corona Calls when you make your pledge. My name is Brian Edwards-Tiegert. I hope you have a great week. Stay well. We'll talk to you next time. <laughs>